Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Stephen Colbrook, your host for today's episode of New Books in History. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Duncan about his new book, The Rebel Cafe, Sex, Race and Politics in Cold War America's Nightclub Underground. In a fascinating cultural history of 1950s America, Duncan uses a bi-coastal frame of reference to outline the rise of a radical nightlife scene in New York and San Francisco. Welcome to the program, Professor Duncan. Oh, thank you for having me. So we always begin our show by asking our guests what brought them to history. So what brought you to, to the study of post-war nightlife culture? Uh, so uh, I, I arrived to do my uh, graduate work at the University of Maryland. I uh, studied with, with James Gilbert there. Um, but I arrived there having already done um, a really fantastic uh, undergraduate uh, senior thesis seminar, uh, Professor Stephanie Cole, uh, where I sort of developed an interest in, in cultural history. My, my background before being a historian was I was a, a professional rock musician for mm-hmm. about 20 years. And uh, so academia was a, a second career. And so I, I think, you know, there's, there's obviously an element of that that I was just drawn to, to cultural topics because of that, that background. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, just my undergraduate thesis was, was an opportunity to do real uh Genuine uh, primary source research. Uh, it included uh, work that I did um, at the, uh, the Library of Congress. Um, I was I was looking at uh, journalism during the American Civil War. That was actually the first the first piece I ever published. Um, so so I already came out of undergraduate uh, knowing that that I was interested in historical research, archival research, and and cultural topics. And the, the way I landed on the topic that became the Rebel Cafe was was actually out of a conversation that I was having with a, a fellow graduate student, um, very very theoretically theoretically grounded. I was, we were, you know, preparing for a for a, a seminar on on theory, and we were discussing Jurgen Habermas and this theorization of the structural change of the public sphere and Habermas's notion that there was decline in the public sphere in the 20th century due to uh, Mass media, etc., and I was, we were sort of just playing with that idea, and, and somehow I just kind of came around to the notion that um, sort of sort of thinking about this nightclub culture and the way that there are uh, really interesting conversations that happen in those spaces, uh, I, I, I started you know questioning. I was like, I don't know, I don't know that, that Habermas was one hundred percent right. I, I you know I'm I'm mm. thinking even to the 1950s, the period just just as the time where he's sort of developing and getting ready to to present his ideas. Um, you know, there there were really controversial conversations happening in those spaces. Somebody like Lenny Bruce, the comedian, is like really confronting the culture with with ideas that uh, were maybe considered shocking, certainly considered controversial, and and. That was really sparking serious discussions, and so so I started looking into that, starting with with the comedian Lenny Bruce, and as I investigated further, what I found was that the the nightclubs themselves actually were playing a really interesting role 
in uh, evoking, in um, maintaining uh, really rigorous and, and vigorous uh, public discourse through the 1950s. And that was, that was sort mm. of the genesis of the project. Great, fantastic. So your book takes a, a sort of fascinating look at the development of this this nightlife scene in San Francisco and New York. Could you just briefly describe for us what this culture was and also how it differed from sort of previous eras? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so New York and San Francisco both have uh, long histories, relatively speaking, in terms of U.S. history, long histories of, of bohemian culture, uh, mm. both both being port cities. Um uh, for for in the American context, relatively old cities. Uh, certainly, New York is older than San Francisco, but um, but still, San Francisco having this long history as a port, uh, and the the same with the same with New York. So you have um, you've got a, a long uh, tradition of multiculturalism, right? People coming in and out of the ports, um, the the port areas being uh, as as they would term it in San Francisco, wide open. Uh, in other words, uh, a long history of, of sort of vibrant sexual culture uh, with sailors, sailors coming in and out of the ports. And so they've been, you know, uh, and in particular, Greenwich Village was the area in New York where where that kind of um, port culture developed in the bars and, and places and things like that. Um, so they became friendly spaces for bohemians, uh, certainly by the end of the, uh, the 19th century. And so you had, you know, any sort of bohemian artists and writers that they sort of, you know, the, a reputation developed that those were places, uh, North Beach, the North Beach area of San Francisco, um, in particular there, because uh, that was where uh, many Italian immigrants uh, settled. And so it had a reputation as a place of sort of good wine, good food. Uh, there was also a, um, a, a housing unit there. Uh, a building, a building called uh, the Montgomery House, that uh, that became a friendly place for Bohemians to live. And so, as word spread uh, by the in the early 20th century that that if you were an artist or a Bohemian, this was these were the kinds of neighborhoods you could move to and and sort of be left alone to be eccentric, uh, because the people that that had been there previously, uh, these sort of immigrant, either Irish immigrant in Greenwich Village or Italian immigrant uh, in in North Beach. Uh, those folks had their own things to their own issues to worry about, their own work to do, and kind of were indifferent to the eccentricities of artists and and bohemians. And so, uh, they had this long tradition of bohemianism. Uh, the kind of bohemianism that you saw there, um, just to summarize quickly, went through uh, three pretty distinct stages. Um, in the the nineteen tens, you would have seen a lot more sort of politically engaged bohemianism, uh, sort of extending, you know, the example you might think of in San Francisco is somebody like Jack London, um, who, you know, identified as a socialist and, and tried to sort of connect proletarian issues with his writing, uh, in New York, um, the New York intellectuals around someone like Randolph Bourne, uh, you know, so a little more politically engaged, uh, in the in the wake of World War One in the 1920s, uh, in the wake of the first Red Scare, this was blunted a little bit, and Bohemianism took on a little bit more of an art for art's sake approach. Sort of this mm-hmm. notion of, of changing consciousness and changing culture without being a sort of directly 
uh, politically vocal, um, less less sort of identified as socialist and more um, more what we would call sort of classically libertarian, right? Sort of individual liberty, um, and this this started to take on an element of of uh, sort of crossing racial lines and crossing crossing sexual lines um, in a way that we would find problematic. But it was a, it was sort of a starting point of of sort of identitarian politics. And then in the 1930s, there was another shift with the Great Depression where that culture sort of took back on the uh, the political trappings. So, um, you know, in in response to the, uh, you know, perception that perhaps uh, we, they were seeing the, the collapse of capitalism, the rise of fascism in Europe was threatening. And so there was a, a more conscious effort to uh, to connect bohemianism back with uh, back with politics. And that's really the starting point for my story is in the 1930s with that generation of bohemians uh, in in those two two locales in response to that political context. Uh, develop the kind of culture that I that I uh, look at in the book. Mm, great, fantastic. Uh, so you touched on there about San Francisco and New York, and I was wondering why, in particular, Greenwich Village and North Beach became such important sites of of Bohemian subculture. Yeah, um, well, for for my purposes, and and I I think I guess it's generally true, um, and, and it's the key sort of in a way the key argument of the book. Is that night spots, uh, so bars, coffee houses, uh, nightclubs, um, sort of collectively referred to there as, as night spots, um, you know, late night cafeterias, things like that. Uh, those those took on and or part of a, a long tradition that extends into the kind of Bohemian centers in Europe as well. Those those played a fundamental role in sort of the the function of Bohemia. Um, they were sites where people could interact and, uh, because they were in these neighborhoods that, that were sort of indifferent or, or relatively safe, uh, for eccentric behavior. Um, you had people that could, that could carry on conversations and sort of, um, uh, sort of experiments in, in social behavior, uh, that, that were outside the norm in relative safety. Uh, this is, this is no, you know, perfect thing. I mean, there were, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. I mean, there were still, um, you know, racial conflicts in, in a place like Greenwich Village. There were still homophobia mm-hmm. in a place like Greenwich Village, but it was at least a place where, you know, new arrivals, people that were coming in, uh, you know, in this process of urbanization that was happening in the first half of the 20th century, people that were coming in uh, from from uh, more more rural areas, smaller towns in other parts of the country knew that these were neighborhoods that if they that if they were people who were um, you know marginalized for, for whatever reason for their political views for their for their sexuality um, and increasingly uh, uh, African Americans that were marginalized racially they knew that that this was at least some place that they could go to find relatively safe spaces to to interact with with like minds. Hmm. Great. So um, your book also makes a kind of intervention into our views of the 1950s as a conservative decade in which artistic license came under threat from McCarthyite red baiting. Uh, so how does your book challenge this narrative and our views of the 50s? Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's, the reality of the second Red Scare is there. I mean, there, there were structural changes that were happening in American society as a result of it. Um, 
in other words, uh, institutions that had developed in the 1930s that were either overtly or covertly connected with the Communist Party um, and with, with socialist ideas, uh, those institutions largely fell apart. The Communist Party itself fell apart. Uh, the communist influence or the socialist influence within American unions was systematically uh, dismantled uh, as a result of, of sort of the reforms after World War II, uh, things like the Treaty of Detroit, um, etc. So, so you have a you do have a structural change that happens that um, you know actual institutions that might have welcomed left-wing ideas uh, as a result of the Cold War and as a, as a result of the, the Red Scare after World War II, uh, folks that would have embraced those ideas were sort of systematically excluded. Mm. Uh, this included some, some, to some level, academia. Uh, anybody who, who, for example, didn't want to take a loyalty oath at the, if their university or college was demanding that, uh, they, could, they could lose their teaching positions, et cetera. Or, or not get them in the first place, and so, uh, so what you see is that is that is still a context for what's happening. Um, I think so. So it's it's not to say that that um, you know McCarthyism, the Red Scare, wasn't important. It actually did bring about you know, these sort of structures, structural shift. Um, what what I bring into the story is that the reaction to that or the response to that uh, was not a passive one. It mm. just um, had to take a form that was not really looked for. In other words, the, the institutions that formed in response, what I sort of identify as this rebel cafe culture, was, was slightly more informal, so hard, harder to identify, and intentionally taking place uh, in, in these sort of sheltered bohemian neighborhoods, at least at first. Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, how just sort of moving on to the the Rebel Cafe itself um, as a as a as a site of Bohemian subculture? How did they facilitate social experimentation and uh, sexual transgression? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, there were it, the. The methods varied. It depended on it depended on the locale. It, it actually depends on the time period that that we're even talking about. Um, but to to generalize, um, there was there was sort of a form of cultural signaling that was happening, and mm. that could if it was in a performance space, it was by the choice of performers. For example, might signal to to audiences and patrons. Uh, you know, this this defines this kind of space. This is a space that you might find welcoming. So if you look at a case like, for example, the Village Vanguard um, in New York, uh, it, it really began, uh, the, the owner, Max Gordon, uh, was very much a, a committed, committed left winger. I mean, he started the, the place in the 1930s as a home for these sort of socialist poets that were that were railing against uh, the failures of capitalism. And as, as the, the, the site evolved, it took on more trappings of a cabaret and it started having these sort of satirical performances again, very, very clearly identifiable as left wing. And as the Red Scare closed in uh, and, and actually shut down a neighboring club that had been doing similar kinds of things, a place called Cafe Society uh, that had more clear sort of 
institutional ties to the Communist Party. Um, as, as the cafe society was shut down in the late 1940s, the village vanguard was able to maintain itself um, by sort of just making those cultural signals a little more subtle. Uh, so, for example, um, a, a, a performer that, that came out of uh, the Village Vanguard was um, Harry Belafonte. So Harry Belafonte is sort of uh, a, a great example of this because his actual material might not seem all that controversial, right? He's, he's uh, singing this, um, you know, these, these sort of ca- uh, Caribbean folk styles, etc., Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when he's doing public interviews, when he's making public statements, he's he's inserting this language of the civil rights movement into his public comments. Mm. And so so and that's that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of the 1950s. For anybody who was looking for those cultural signals, they could find them. Right. So they could see that Harry Belafonte was a performer at the Village Vanguard and and. Uh, again, late, later in the 50s, somebody like Lenny Bruce is a performer at the Village Vanguard. And that's sort of signaling, oh, okay, this is a space that welcomes that kind of discourse. Even if mm-hmm. sometimes the performances themselves might not have been controversial, some of the jazz musicians that were performing there weren't, weren't you know, railing against, uh, you know, weren't between songs getting on the mic and, and, and railing against uh, white supremacy. Uh, uh, but somebody like Dizzy Gillespie, again, offstage, is certainly making public statements that make it clear, you know, where he stands on the civil rights movement, where he stands on white supremacy. And you see somebody like his, you see his name on the marquee, or somebody like Charles Mingus, you see his his name on the marquee, uh, you know that that is a space that's going to welcome that kind of discourse inside its inside its walls, right, in that kind of enclosed space. Uh, the conversations that are happening between acts uh, among the patrons, you know, people standing at the bar. Uh, again, not that they were all political, right? But it just was a way of sort of signaling that this is a place where you might be able to engage in that kind of conversation. You might meet someone else who who is interested in in uh, kind of social and political issues. Hmm. Great. So um, I was also wondering what the the limitations of this rebel cafe liberation were and how it sort of mirrored power hierarchies within the broader culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the biggest issues by far is the issue of gender. Uh, These Mm -hmm. were definitely sort of male gendered spaces where, um, you know, women women asserted themselves. Uh, and they they were able to increasingly, and you you, you know there are some cases, uh, some important cases of women who became uh, night spot owners in particular uh, in San Francisco. That was important because it was it was an interesting thing there in terms of the law in San Francisco. It was illegal for a woman to be a bartender, but she could be a saloon owner. So so you literally have women banned from, from serving drinks unless they're the owner of the, the establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's, to me, that's a prime example, right? So these, these, these spaces are, are gendered male, both in terms of sort of the cultural traditions of, of bars and saloons as being male spaces, but then there, there are actually even structural elements that were maintaining that in the example of San Francisco there. Um, and, and even just, again, the informal 
norms. Uh, that that same owner, Max Gordon, that I was talking about a second ago, that, that owned the Village Vanguard, he owned another nightclub uh, that was um, in Midtown, the Blue Angel. So it was considered a little more upscale kind of place. And he had a policy that single women couldn't sit at the bar. They had to be accompanied by, by a male uh, patron. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so even among people that were you know, definitely identifiably on the progressive side of American politics, still had sometimes now that wasn't the case of the village vanguard and that that's tells you a little something about the the kind of conscious effort that he was making to cultivate two different kinds of cultures and two different kinds of venues but it's still an indication of the fact that there were both cultural norms and and like i said structural norms that that gendered these spaces male so that was that was a key limitation there um and the the other kinds of um sort of normalized prejudices that existed in American society, of course, are going to reproduce themselves uh, in any space. Uh, mm-hmm. So so the kind of casual racism that's so obvious in uh, the writers of the Beat Generation, for example, were key subjects of mine, uh, you know, writers like Jack Kerouac, um, a poet like Allen Ginsberg, even though they were, they were consciously anti-racist, their their unconscious racism is also very very clear when we look at their writings. Um, it's it's a different kind of kind of you know racist portrayal, the sort of idealization of people of color that that was its own kind of dehumanization. Uh, even as they thought they were, cel- you know, simply celebrating people of color, we can we can recognize this as a, as a more subtle but still insidious kind of racism. Um, so, so even just these kind of unconscious notions, for example, about that, uh, the unconscious assumptions about homosexuality, uh, that even if you, even as you have someone again, to take, to take Jack Kerouac as a great example, um, Jack Kerouac, who in his, in his actual life, uh, was, was, uh, you know, bisexual. If you look at his writings, you know, there's there, the homophobia in, in much of his prose is, is sort of shocking and hard to read uh, to our eyes these days. And so, so I think that's just a, a, uh, a consequence of the fact that cultural change happens slowly. And uh, the, the unconscious assumptions that we have in the broader society, even among people who are trying to challenge those assumptions, uh, they, some of those assumptions become internalized. And so, so they couldn't help it, uh, you know, reproduce themselves. And then, lastly, in terms of race, uh, some of this is, is, uh, for example, uh, the product of the fact that those neighborhoods, North Beach and Greenwich Village, themselves were changing slowly. Uh, so, a prime example that I would point to, that for example, that's in the book, uh, is James Baldwin's experience of moving from Harlem to Greenwich Village in the 1940s, and he. It's, it's a really interesting multi-layered story because he left Harlem because um, his sexuality was so frowned on in Harlem that he was looking for a space of more liberation and Greenwich Village was, was more gay friendly. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's arriving at some of these bars. Uh, the San Remo Cafe is a prime example. When he first arrives there to try to sort of connect with, with uh, writers who hung out there, he was thrown out. The The... Uh, the Italian, these kind of old school Italian owners, uh, you know, were were uh, still embraced embraced this racist notion of of 
rejecting African-Americans from Greenwich Village. Uh, That itself changed over time. As James Baldwin sort of became accepted into the literary community, the San Remo Cafe actually became a welcoming space. The bartenders there and the owner there actually ended up defending him, sometimes physically, against a, a, you know a racist racist assaults from uh, from sort of local local uh, neighborhood toughs uh, who were after him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Another really important part of uh, post-war America that historians have outlined is the rise of consumer culture. And so I was wondering how these spaces balanced the tension between their bohemianism and the commercialism of post-war American culture. You know, obviously they are businesses, they have to make some kind of profit. How did they they balance that tension? Yeah, and that's that's a good way to connect in a way what, what we were just talking about. Um, you know, so some of the, as as it, it really was a balancing act. And so you had owners who did have political views and did want to nurture spaces of, of sort of controversy and, and uh, try to try to influence political consciousness. Uh, but you have to get people in the door to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so if, if they're, if they're too open about those things or um, if they flaunt too many norms, and again, it depends on the venue. But um, but it has to you know it has to be a welcoming enough space for somebody who hasn't already made up their mind that they want to be some sort of cultural radical or something like that. Um, but again, I think the the example of the Village Vanguard versus the Blue Angel is two nightclubs that were they were both owned by the same owner. Um, the the different policies, the different kinds of acts that performed in those two places. Uh, are, it's, that's a prime example. So in other words, Max Gordon knew what kind of audience he could draw in Greenwich Village, and it was a different kind of audience than he could draw in Midtown Manhattan. And he was a business owner. He was the, he'd be the first one to tell you, as says in his memoir, you know, I, I need to make a living. I mean, this is, you know, we, we ultimately as much as, uh, you know, um, he may want to see America reform its ways. We live in a capitalist society and I have to, I have to pay my rent. And uh, so, so, you know, even though he would have more open policies at the Village Vanguard, because he knew that audience would accept it, he was more restrictive at a place like the Blue Angel, uh, because he was trying to attract uh, a more sort of uh, middle class, uh, mainstream audience there. Uh, but, but on the other side of it, you know, you have a, a, uh, a bar like The Place, a place called The Place, simply, in North Beach uh, that opened in 1954, very, very consciously with the intention of being a transgressive artistic space that, you know, their, their biggest problem was simply keeping the San Francisco police from shutting them down on a regular basis because of the kinds of public uh, displays that were going on there, right? Very um, sort of... Uh, open discussion of, of sexuality. They had a, they had a, uh, a regular weekly, uh, event there called Blabbermouth Night. That was an open forum, uh, where anyone from the audience could get up on their balcony and, you know, give a speech or make a, do a performance or whatever, uh, sort of open forum for, for anyone to say anything to the gathered crowd there. And then, then uh, the audience would vote on a winner each night. And the, the bar was was on a fairly regular basis shut down by the police because uh, because of women 
you know, using uh, salty language or open discussion of, of sexual behavior, et cetera. Um, and so, so a place like that found its audience by being consciously transgressive. So, so the, the, it could, it could really vary. Um, but I think mm. the, the common thread there is that there had to be a conscious strategy. Uh, the nightclub business is a hard business. Uh, those, these places don't stay open for long, many of them, many of them. Uh, and so, so that, that is the, the, the common thread that I would point to there is there, there was a, con- I, I think among the owners, most times there was a conscious strategy about, um, how they were going to attract their patrons and, uh, what kinds of, uh, what kinds of atmosphere they would create that would actually allow them to, to, you know, do business and stay open. Fascinating. So you have a really interesting chapter on uh, humor in the public sphere in in post-war America. So I was wondering what role comedy played in the the rebel cafe scene. Yeah, it was actually really important. And one of the things that I that I note is that of all the cultural forms that that came out of the scene, the one that's the most recognizable in in our own culture today is the style of nightclub comedy that came out of it. Uh, I refer to it as, as brick wall comedy. Uh, it's kind of become a, a, a cliche, you know, that comedy clubs have this brick wall and that actually is the, you know, but behind the, behind the, the comedians. And that that's actually the product of a very particular nightclub in, in San Francisco in North beach called the hungry eye. Uh, it was a, a, a venue that was open in an old, an old basement as many of these places were and uh, as the owner was was doing the renovations to open the club, he was sort of tearing out the old walls and found the original brick walls behind uh, behind the plaster that he was tearing out. And he decided just to just to leave the original brick wall. It sort of was this this idea of um, evoking the the kind of authenticity of of the old world, right? This sort of Parisian uh, imagery of of um, of the old cabarets of, of the early 20th century, I think was what he was trying to achieve by leaving these bare brick walls. Uh, and so that, be- so the comedians that came out of the hungry eye, uh, Mort Saul and uh, Lenny Bruce, who I mentioned before, um, as they sort of captured the public imagination in the late 1950s, the hungry eye was sort of their, their home base. And so this image of a, a controversial comedian that is addressing social issues standing in front of a brick wall became uh, sort of associated with that style of comedy. Uh, and it's, it is one of those things where we take it for granted today that comedy is going to have the social commentary aspect to it. Uh, but that's, that's not an assumption that we, that is, it's actually natural. That's actually a, a phenomenon that really came out of, of this particular uh, moment of the 1950s uh, that has really stuck with us. The comedian as social critic, right? This ability for comedians to speak hard truths to the public because they're sort of moderating that hard truth with a punchline, with some, with some level of humor makes it easier to, to accept uh, for for those who who might see this as as you know see their 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 content their point that the critique itself for those who might find that critique controversial or difficult um, there is at least an opening there that if well a bit if they if they find the joke funny in some kind of way um, it it opens it opens the mind of the audience 
maybe just maybe just a crack, maybe just enough that it it allows new ideas to come in. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the structural role um, in in the, in this Freudian sense, and in in some ways very consciously. Someone like like Lenny Bruce is very conscious of the fact that Freudianism is becoming embedded in in uh, the mainstream of American society in the 1950s, and he's he's making jokes about it. But I think at sort of a the level of sort of a grassroots intellectual, because Lenny Bruce is not is not uh, an academic by any stretch. He's a, he's a um, not a very highly educated guy, but but he was he was interested in in um, sort of sophisticated ideas, and I think that is something that he was that he, at sort of an, an almost intuitive level he was aware of that he was speaking to the subconscious of of the American public with the way he you know brought controversial themes into his comedy, and uh, and I and I. So, um, so I'm not saying he, I'm not saying he modeled himself on Freud, but if you read Freud on humor, that's, that was the main point that Freud was making is that humor exists at the level of the unconscious, right? It's this buildup of unconscious tension and and its release, uh, is the way a joke works. And that at the same time, that then allows, uh, new ideas to, to, to be broached. Uh, because of that that sense of tension and release, uh, it actually is the the pleasure the the core of the pleasure of of humor. And uh, Lenny Bruce is a, a classic example of using that method of building up a tension of a controversial idea, only to then somehow release it in a way that um, you know provides provides pleasure, but at the same time you're left with this residue of of sort of you know what that that controversial uh, point was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, so you outlined earlier for us the sort of different stages of nightlife culture and how it relates to leftist politics. And so bringing it forward to the, the Rebel Cafe era, um, how did these places operate politically and what were the limitations of their radicalism and leftism? Yeah, great question. So um, structurally, uh, most of the ties to the left were somewhat oblique. Um, so, so you had very few nightclub owners who were, you know, card carrying members of the, the communist party or something like that. Um, but, but many of them had, um, cultural connections, uh, to the left. Uh, so Max Gordon, I mentioned earlier, you know, certainly, um, was, was connected socially with, uh, sort of identifiable communists and socialists. Um, but for the most part, uh, what you're talking about are people that um, were just sort of more, more sort of culturally connected to the left uh, in terms of the nightclub owners. So it's, so a prime example would be um, the owner of a, of a nightclub called the village gate uh, that opened in, in the late 1950s, uh, a guy named Art DeLugoff. And his his background before becoming a nightclub owner was as a journalist, and uh, he, he wrote for uh, newspapers that had sort of left leaning content. Was involved in investigating issues that would have been interesting to the progressive left, and uh, and so so he so he wasn't he wasn't a formal activist, uh, but he was someone who had. 
um, connections in social circles with people who were who were certainly more activist, and and he opened the village gate with that again is another example of somebody who was consciously butch- booking acts uh, performers that he knew had socially conscious ideas, sort of signaling to the public. In fact, that increasingly so by the early nineteen sixties, he's um, hosting, uh, for example, a performance called Cabaret for Freedom that featured Maya Angelou and was a fundraiser for, um, for the civil rights movement, uh, for the, uh, for the Southern Christian leadership conference. Uh, and in fact, it was, it was through that, um, that series of performances that Maya Angelou connected with that organization and actually became an activist herself. So again, just sort of a prime illustration there. So Art DeLugoff is not an activist, but he's welcoming performances that both culturally explore the question of uh, racial justice in the United States and structurally is helping donate money from the performances to a particular organization and actually connecting people from the nightclub culture with an actual activist group. Great. Um, So your final chapter brings the narrative forward to the 1960s. Uh, so I was wondering how this nightlife scene interacted with the social movements of that decade, and also, um, and I think linked to this, what led to the ultimate demise of the Rebel Cafe. Yeah. So again, the uh, the the case of the Village Gate is is a is a prime illustration of of a a process that you know it's it's different in different different places. Each venue has its own particular history. Uh, but the, the village gate, I think, I think really illustrates this. So what begins as a venue that is intended to be sort of signaling to the public that this is a bohemian space and, you know, you might go there and, and see a performance that, uh, that opens your eyes a little bit or meet someone else who, who is a like mind, uh, in the, in the late 1950s by 1962 is overtly, you know, uh, championing uh, a cause like the civil rights movement, raising money for the movement, uh, sh- featuring performances um, like Cabaret for Freedom, uh, like like performances of Max Roach's uh, Freedom Now Suite, which again was was intentionally uh, targeting uh, finding finding a musical expression of what was happening uh, with the uh, the Southern sit-ins, etc. And and the and the, the sort of increasing awareness of of uh, uh, black power, kind of an incipient version of black power, embracing African culture and embracing African rhythms as an expression of of um, racial pride in in the African American community. So so you have these places that are becoming more consciously, overtly political in the sort of uh, growing uh, political movements of the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And then I would also say that that's then uh, a signal of, of their, their coming demise as well. In other words, as those political statements become more acceptable, again, in part because of this culture, sort of slowly introducing it to the mainstream, as the mainstream started to embrace rebel cafe culture, and started opening its mind to, to some extent, at least to these kinds of political ideas. As those ideas became mainstream, uh, the the function of these 
bohemian night spots as protective spaces, so, you know, that, that function starts to, uh, to dissipate. Uh, the, the places are no longer serving that function. And uh, so, it, so a new style of nightclub starts to, starts to come up to serve the needs of those patrons, which no longer needs this sort of community-based sheltering space. It's more of a, uh, you know, in a way, a return back to uh, what would have been a previous nightclub culture of sort of pure entertainment and spectacle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. So I think we've taken up uh, a lot of your time and we just have time to ask you one final question, which is what are you working on now? Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I don't have a very satisfying answer for you, but I'll, but I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm, what I'm working on. Uh, so, so I, you know, I just finished the rebel cafe in, in fall 2018. So I've been sort of doing a little bit of soul searching, um, you know, thinking about the the political moment uh, that we're in, um, I don't. You know, I don't know if you guys get news about this uh, on the other side of the pond, but the president that we have now in the United States is a little bit of a controversial figure. Um, <laughs> so, um, sort of in the in the wake of in the wake of 2016, I'll I'll be honest that I've I've done a lot of soul searching in terms of what's the what are the philosophical underpinnings of the historian's work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are there are a lot of intense conversations happening uh, right now, uh, you know, very uh, I mean, there's there's a sense um, among uh, among many people here that um, that we're, we're sort of fighting, fighting a new fight for the for the soul of what America is going to be, uh, not to put too grandiose a point on it, but there is kind of a sense that we're at a, a historical turning point. And so in, in my own way, uh, the discussions that I've been having with, with friends and family that I unfortunately find myself across a deep political divide from is what I could bring as a historian is to say, okay, let's see if we can go back to some fundamentals, right? What are some founding principles of this American experiment that I, that I like to, to explore and try to understand better. And w- one of the things that I've landed on, and this is going to sound a bit strange perhaps with that, with that setup is um, that, that the, the very tradition of Lockean liberalism, the work of John Locke as, as having introduced a, a set of founding principles that are at least recognizable if not fully embraced, but are at least identifiable to people across the political spectrum in this country, uh, is is something that I keep coming back to. So, so I don't know what my next project is going to be, but I'm reading a lot about Lockean liberalism in the United States, its traditions, even in places where it's it's not as um, concretely identifiable. And so I'm so I'm not sure where this is going to take me yet. It might it might end up being an intellectual history of of sort of um, the various ways in terms of uh, the various ways in which Lockean liberalism has been interpreted by intellectuals uh, over the, the past uh, couple of centuries. I'm not quite sure, um, but, but that's, I do have a philosophical goal in mind, which is to sort of go back to this question of first principles and what can American history tell us in our own political moment about those first principles and, and the meaning they've had over time. So I hope that's a, 
at least somewhat of a satisfying answer. Hey, I'm, great. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still casting about for exactly what it is I'm going to write. So. Um, yeah, that sounds really uh, interesting, uh, the, the sort of different thoughts you're having and I very much uh, look forward to reading whatever research you produce from it well thank you and it's been a pleasure talking with you thank you for having me